morning, if you turn with me to uh, the passage in which today's uh, teaching is based, it's printed on page 8 in your bulletins, and uh, I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. We're talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that has come, and Jesus is describing for us the values of the kingdom. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And this is God's word. Whenever one administration departs and replaces another administration, the first thing that the leader of that new administration will do is to convey the values of his administration. And that's what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is sharing with us the values of a new administration, a new order in the world, his kingdom the kingdom of God. And it's totally different. In fact, it's counter to the values of the world. Uh, Before we took this break uh, in in the sermon series, we were going through a period of uh, a Lenten series. And before we did that, we ended, we closed with Jesus's talk about sex and lust and adultery. And what did Jesus say? Because the kingdom's values are utterly different than the values of the world. He says, hey, you heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you this. And the values of the kingdom are so much deeper and so much uh, higher than we could have ever expected. Now, today we live in a written culture, and that means that most of the promises we make today take place through the signing of contracts, signing documents. But in Jesus' time, He lived in an oral culture. And so contracts, promises, oaths, they were largely made verbally and they were made in public. But the principles are the same because what is an oath? What is a contract? What is a promise? Oaths uh, are an observed word that that take place before lots of witnesses. And as a result, whether it's done verbally or done in a written fashion, you're held accountable to them. So when Jesus says in verse 33, you have heard it said, it's an oral culture. He says, you've heard it said. He's critiquing the interpretation of the law by the religious leaders, not the law itself. He's not saying, I'm going to get rid of the law. I'm overhauling it with my own version. That's not what he's saying. He's critiquing the way the religious leaders of his day were interpreting the law. He says, you've heard it said, verse 34, when Jesus says, do not swear At first, it looks like he's saying, don't make public promises ever. Don't ever make promises. But the reason why we don't know is because Jesus himself made promises. The apostle Paul made promises. In Genesis chapter 15, God makes an oath himself. And he says, I'm going to hold myself accountable to the point of death. That's what he says. And so it can't, I mean, if you think about it, the entire Bible is built on promises and oaths. And covenants. So you can't say that the Bible teaches us not to make promises. 
The reason why I'm saying that is because we live in a culture today where people don't want the responsibility of a promise. They'd rather just not make the promise at all. Jesus says in verses 34 to 35, you swear by heaven, that's God's throne. You swear by the earth, that's God's footstool. You swear by Jerusalem, that's God's city. In fact, if you swear by your own head, you didn't create your head. You don't own your head. God owns these things. In other words, what he's saying is God is everywhere. God owns everything, and he sees, and he hears, and he is witness. How does knowing that you are observed, completely observed, shape how you speak, shape what you promise? How does knowing that you're being watched by the only eyes that matter, you are being heard by the only ears that matter, and you'll never get away, you'll never escape, how does that shape how you own up to what you promise? Because you're before the face of God, he says. And his appraisal of you, what he values, his approval of you, his opinion of you, what he sees of you, that's all that matters. And so every yes is an oath. Every no is an oath. It doesn't matter how simple the oath is. It doesn't matter how large that oath is. So you can't create levels of truthfulness. Now, Jesus is not saying that there aren't degrees of commitment. Certainly there are degrees of commitment. In our, uh, you know, if we're on our way out today, and I've shared this before, and I say, you know, hey, let's, let's meet sometime this week. I'll give you a call. And I don't give you a call. That's my sin. Pastors have this uh, unique um, commonality, at least most of us, we're people pleasers. And so we often promise a lot more than we're able to own up or live up to. And uh, Jesus says, hey, every yes, every no, that's observed. That means that this is serious. This is serious. But in this case, if, you know, if I make a promise to meet with you or call you and I don't, it's probably not going to be the end of the world. It's probably not, uh, it doesn't come with huge consequences. But on the other hand, if I say to my wife, on my wedding day, I will be faithful until death do us part, and I break that vow, it's a much higher commitment. Nevertheless, small commitments, large commitments, you just read a prayer confession. That was a commitment. That's a contract. That's a covenantal promise that you're making. You see? And so these things, they're all observed. And so today we're going to talk about integrity. Our integrity. Three things we're going to talk about integrity today. Why it's important to have integrity. What does it mean to say that we have integrity? How do you get real integrity? Right? How do you get a, a transformed you that has integrity? Why is it important? What does it mean? How do you get it? First, we're going to look at why it's important. Jesus teaches us why it's important. Verse 37, he says, because every yes is witnessed. Every no is witnessed. Jesus is saying, I want everything you say to be true. And he's serious about this. You know how serious? This passage is sandwiched between Jesus' teaching on adultery and Jesus' teaching on vengeance. That means he treats integrity, your lives, with that kind of severity. Those two crimes are treated with capital punishment in those days. He sandwiches that with our lies. It's very serious. Now, some of us, it's challenging because we live and work, we work in environments in which misrepresentation, half-truths, lies, white lies, we call it, right? Uh, these things are part of our lives. 
some of us, we look at certain lies and we say, well, these lies don't do any harm to anybody else, so it's okay. But because all promises are observed, even the smallest lie takes you on a slippery slope. And Jesus says you have to understand that the battle for truthfulness in your life, the battle for integrity in your life is fought with every little yes you say, you utter, every little no. And so there's several reasons why integrity is important. Number one, it actually makes you freer. It actually makes you freer. In other words, if you don't have integrity, if you don't think about integrity, if you don't understand the concept of integrity, if there's no integrity in your life, you are no less than an animal or a machine. Think about this. Animals are what? They're completely controlled by their instincts. They're reactive by nature. They don't sit and process, learn from their mistakes in a sense, right, uh, and say, well, you know what, I made some commitments tomorrow, and so I'm going to have to live up to these commitments. Animals don't do that. They're completely controlled by their environment and their instincts. Computers, on the other hand, are programmed to respond to certain stimuli and triggers, right, no matter how complex they are. And so both an animal and a computer are limited, Animals are unpredictable because they rely on instincts. They rely on reaction, and computers have no real instincts at all. They're programmed, and so both are constrained in an unpredictable, uncertain world. But but humans, we can make promises. And that means that keeping your commitments, being true, being reliable, being dependable, being consistent, following through on things is the only way that you can find some semblance, some level of certainty in unpredictable times. Adhering to your word calls the world to see you as something above an animal in some ways, that you're not an animal. It frees you. It frees you from those shackles because you're not controlled by your environment You're not controlled by your feelings. You're not controlled by your mood, your instincts, your appetites. But also, you're not a computer. You're not programmed. Holding to your promises makes you freer and more human, not less human. Now, the reason why I say this is because the modern world doesn't see it this way. The modern world today says, if you really want to be happy, if you truly want to be happy, you have to free yourself from every obligation. And so there's no loyalty anymore. There's absolutely no loyalty at work. There's no loyalty in our marriages. There's no loyalty in our relationships, right? Because if you want to be free, you want to stay away from commitments. And so today, that marital promise, even in the church, we're seeing a dilemma because that marital promise is replaced first by couples living together. We don't join churches. We just attend churches. We don't tithe. We just give when we feel. When there's a surplus, you see, it's a dilemma, Integrity is having faith in something that serves as a foundation for the promises you make and you follow through no matter how you feel, no matter what circumstances there are. It's the only way that you can truly be free and at the same time have a real identity. Otherwise, how do you know who you really are? And that's the second reason why I say it's important. How do you know who you really are? And what you really value, except through the promises that you make in the face of uncertain circumstances, the commitments that you make. When you sign a lease, what you're saying is, no matter what happens, no matter what befalls me, 
I will pay on the first of every month. You ain't going to call a bank and tell them, well, I've been in some emotional trouble. You know, my boyfriend broke up with me and I was, you know, a little, going through some stuff. Can I get two more weeks? There's none of that when you sign a lease. When you sign a lease, you're saying, I don't care if I have to give up possessions. I don't care if that means that I'm going to eat ramen noodles every day for the rest of the next two months. I'm going to honor this commitment. That's what happens when you sign a lease. When you become an employee, you review the stipulations of being an employee. You don't realize that. Where is that? Well, it's because every time you receive an employee code of conduct, an employee handbook, it tells you this is what you're committing to when you become an employee of this organization or this community. And so you're, when you agree, that makes you a member. You're held to that. Now, sometimes you don't believe in it. Sometimes you don't want to follow through. But who are you if you don't honor your promises? You never know who you are. Jesus is saying that your integrity should always come before your self-fulfillment. No matter what the world says, no matter what anybody else says, your integrity is very important. Imagine a society where everyone lies. You're living in it. Imagine a society where everyone lies. Political leaders, business leaders, you know, when you make business contracts, you know, people say, I'm going to honor it. They lie. Imagine. Um, every academic publish, uh, uh, published article or journal uh, piece that you read, all lies, all fabricated. Imagine that, right? You can't have a society without commitments. You can't have a nation. You can't have commerce. You can't have academy. You can't have church. You can't have family. And the thing is, those societies, those societies actually existed. You know, during the French Revolution, Napoleon, he banned cafes during the time when he became emperor. And the reason why is because when people get together in cafes, what do they do? They talk. They share. They grieve together. They conspire. They join. They assemble. And so Napoleon, because cafes were everywhere in France, he banned cafes. Cafes were empty. They were shut down. Uh, Stalin's USSR, Joseph Stalin's USSR, uh, when he was the head of the state, uh, he made divorces very easy. All you had to do was take a postcard and basically write to your spouse that I divorce you, and that made divorce possible. Uh, in the USSR, if you went to a psychiatrist or a journalist, an academic professor or a preacher, they all relayed the same party propaganda. They were all lies. In Hitler's Germany, he created systematic distrust among all the ranks of his organization. Why did these leaders do that? And it's very, very simple. They wanted to fragment society, atomize society, because the more you felt that people were alone and isolated, the easier it was to control them. To create a society that's void of society. And today, all scholars, all surveys tell us that we are lying to each other more than ever. We don't trust each other. Jesus says, this is God's city. You belong to God. And your sins will find you out. Other people may not find out. Justice may not happen here. But there will be justice. There's not a single sin that will go unaccounted for. That's what he says.
every cheat, every lie. Sometimes we lie to be polite. Sometimes we lie to be kind. Sometimes we lie because it's part of the culture to, to not tell the truth about certain things. Sometimes you lie, you think you're being noble. I just I don't want to hurt my friend. You know what you're doing? You are a coward and you are selfish. And that cowardice and selfishness is destroying that person that you're trying to protect, that community and that society. When you're called to actually rebuild that person, rebuild community, rebuild society. And in the process, you are destroying yourself. You're losing yourself in the process. Because who are you and what do you value if you cannot hold to your commitments? Who are you? Is your yes really a yes? Is your no really a no? Very important. That was the first point. Number two, what is it? What does it mean to have integrity? Because the word integrity, the root word of the word integrity is what? Integer. Math teachers, teachers, integer. Integer means what? Kind of have to go back to like middle school days. Integer means whole, as opposed to being a fraction. To be a fraction, to be in pieces, is to be fragmented. And there are many ways to lie. Not speaking when speaking up is called for, speaking untruths, speaking modified versions of the truth in a very believable way. But a person of integrity is whole, a person of integrity is integrated. That means that what they say is the same thing as what they think, is the same thing as how they feel, and it's the same thing as what they do. Integrity is when somebody, somebody does not say, I'm going to do this, but then does something else. I'm going to come over at 7, and then they come over at 9. That's not integrity. I'm going to come over tomorrow, and they say, I'm bailing out. I'll come over the next day. I'm bailing out. I'll come over the next day. Something came up, Right? We do that all the time. Integrity is not saying one thing, right? It's not saying one thing and then thinking something else. Somebody invites you over to their house for dinner. You say, you know what? I'm going out of town. I'd love to come over. but I'm going out of town when you really don't want to go, right? Integrity, when you have integrity, you're removing the complexity of your speech and your thoughts, and you become very simple. Otherwise, you're saying one thing and you're doing something else. When you have integrity, simple. When you say one thing and you do something else, when you say one thing and you think something else, now it's not simple. There's no longer simplicity, right? Singularity, integration. There is actually fragmentation. That's called duplicity, right? Now you're becoming more complex. You're bringing complexity into your life. And so it could be something as simple, spouses, you go through this, right? How are you doing? You, you, is everything okay? I'm fine, <laughs> right? There is complexity now being introduced into this conversation, right? You're saying you're fine when people know that something's wrong. Once the truth becomes halved, you're no longer whole. In other words, you become, you become a fraction. You go into pieces. You become fragmented. Integrity is when you say something, when you do something, right, when people are looking at you, and when no one else is looking at you, it's still the same thing. There are people, they're one way when certain people are looking at them, and they're another way when those people are not looking at them, you see? They're one way when certain people are looking at them, and they're another way when other people are looking at them. That means that you don't have integrity. When you have integrity, people know you, and it's consistent. People know who you are. 
So even if bad things ultimately get claimed against you, they know, because they know who you are. They know it's not true. They know what they're getting with you. That makes you dependable. That makes you reliable. That makes you disarming. That makes you winsome. That makes you trustworthy. If you try to hide who you really are and only show people what they like to see, it's only a matter of time, first of all, before it becomes visible. And when it becomes visible, people don't know who you are, what they're getting with you. You become untrustworthy. You see? And we just blew through the first two uh, points. Let me go to the third one. and We're going to kind of slow it down a little bit. How do you become that person? How do you become a person of integrity? One, Jesus says, let your yes be a yes. Let your no be a no. Verse 36, you can't even change a hair on your head from black to white. Trust me, I wish I could, right? You can't, right? Well, I want to go from white back to black. I'm starting to gain more white hairs. In other words, uh, you didn't create your head, so you don't own it. You don't own your head. You're a creature. You are part of creation. And if you don't tell the truth, you're actually going against the way you were designed. You did not design yourself. You do not get to determine this is the way I'm built. That's just the way I am. You can't do that. That right has been taken away from you because you didn't build yourself. You didn't design yourself. You can't even change a single part, that single simplistic thing that just falls off or gets cut out eventually because it grows too long. Jesus is saying, you don't own yourself. You are a created being. The creator is telling you that the same reason why you shouldn't commit adultery, the same reason why you shouldn't lie is the same reason why you can't breathe underwater. You will die, he says. Your lungs weren't built for breathing underwater, right? So if you violate that design, if you, oh, that's, that's hogwash, I'm going to go jump in the water and take a nice deep breath. No one does that because you know implicitly, inherently, you learn very quickly, right, as, a, as a, probably a child, right, that that would destroy you. In the same way, you were designed for truth. You were designed for truth. Just because it doesn't kill you as quickly doesn't mean that the creator, when the creator says it will kill you, it won't ruin you. As you try to breathe, uh, you know, um, as you, just as you uh, try to breathe underwater, if you're in the habit of telling even the smallest bending of truth and reality, you will drown, drown ultimately in your lies. Jesus says everything is his. He designed heaven. He designed the earth. He designed the city. He designed you. And you were designed for truth. You were made in the image of God. You were made to praise and glorify God by being his image. In the process, in, in just living out, being the image, God has created you. But he didn't just create you, he also redeemed you because we are broken images of our creator, right? When, when man chose to rebel against their creator, it began with what? A lie. The deceiver. What Satan did when he was talking to Eve in the Garden of Eden you know, Eve, first of all, distorted what God actually said about the tree, the fruit of the tree, right? It's another sermon, another time. We're going to get into that actually at some point pretty quickly. We're going to be doing a series on Genesis, not too far down the road, right? But when the serpent, Satan, approached Eve, he began to tempt her with a lie. Did God really say that? 
And what he was putting in Eve was a dissatisfaction and a, and a pursuit, a desire to pursue her own fulfillment. Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was good. It was pleasing to the eye. In other words, she's saying is, why would God withhold something that I think looks good for me? Why would God withhold something that I believe will please me? Why would God withhold something and the lies start to fill up? She started with a lie. She was told a lie. The lies start to consume her, and then she died. We weren't meant for that, you see. But God not only designed us, he also redeemed his people, which is why the apostle Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought by Jesus. So if you want your heart to be motivated with a gospel integrity, you need to see then how Jesus acted when nobody else was looking. And so we didn't cover this too long ago. In the Garden of Gethsemane, everybody's asleep. Jesus is literally trying to keep them awake. Everybody falls asleep. Nobody is around. Nobody even knew yet what was being promised. And Jesus tried to tell the disciples that he was going to die for their sins, and they still didn't get it. So at the point where they're in Gethsemane and Jesus is praying, the text says that he was sweating blood, right? And he felt the weight of what was going to happen. John Owen says he was staring into the furnace and felt the heat of what was going to befall him. And he looked to the Father when nobody else was looking, knowing that and feeling the weight of the punishment that he would be taking for the sins of his people. He looked at the Father when no one else was looking, and he said what? Not my will. Not my will. In other words, what he's saying is, first of all, I'm overwhelmed by this. I'm overwhelmed to the point of death by this, he says. He's sweating blood. That means that he was literally going into a form of shock there. He was troubled, and he was scared. In a sense, he's saying, I don't want this but I will do it, he says. May your will be done. You know why? Because he promised. He promised. This was his mission. This is why he came. And he trusted the Father. Even though he saw and stared into what was about to happen to him, he trusted that God would redeem his people and God would make a way. And so his promise was in line with his mission. And that was far more important than him feeling any form of fulfillment at that time. And so Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says this, that Jesus Christ did it for the joy that was set before him. This was his joy. It became his joy. It means he was glad to do it. And so in Matthew chapter 26, during the trial with the high priest, the high priest charges Jesus. He says, I charge you under oath, meaning you are now under oath, by the living God, are you the Christ? And Jesus, who's totally silent up until that point, he says, yes, it is as you say. Not now he knows what's going to happen to him because he says that. He says, he says, yes. Jesus is not willing to say anything until he was actually brought under oath. He could have said it before. He could have said it after. But it wasn't until he was charged under oath when he says, yes knowing what would happen, and he did it for his people. He did it for us. He did it for his church. You see that? To the degree that you see Jesus, to the degree that you trust Jesus dying in the dark for you when nobody else was looking, 
you will be able to live in the dark for him when no one else is looking. Look at Jesus Christ. On one hand, Jesus Christ is the creator. Jesus Christ is the king. He's the creator king, and he's just, so you're never going to get away with your lies. Everything is observed, he says. Everything is accounted for, he says. To lie is to betray the ruling hands of the king. But on the other hand, he's the redeemer king. He's the redeemer king. Look what he did for you. Look at what he did on the cross for you. So to lie is to reject the healing hands of the king. Most of us lie out of fear. If you really think about it, why do we lie? We lie because at that moment in time, if we tell the truth, there is a fear that sets in of what the consequences of lying, of, of telling the truth. Whatever the truth is, it could be something very, very small. Most of us lie out of fear or we, we lie out of pride. Our ego, even though you know maybe you can't live up to it, you can't hold up to it. Fear says, I don't want anyone, to see, I don't want anyone out there to see the truth of who I really am. Pride says, I want people to see something different than I really am. It's very, it's very similar. That's why fear tends to drive pride, and pride tries to, uh, to uh, drive uh, fear. If you lie out of fear, if you lie out of pride, that leads to tremendous guilt at times. But the guilt is not going to be enough to keep you from lying. You're going to continue to lie, and then eventually the slippery slope, and then eventually you will drown in those lies. You will be found out. Those lies increase. Those lies get bigger. If you get in the habit of lying, it starts to become easier for you, Right? you will eventually be found out. Eventually, you will get caught somewhere, and it will be devastating. So you can't, you can't let guilt be the driver of the healing of your lies. You need something that's going to overcome your fear. You need something that's going to overwhelm your pride or your ego. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. I mean, we make promises to get out of trouble. We make promises to avoid trial in our lives. We make promises to avoid persecution because it feels like death to us. We can't possibly withstand that. But look at Jesus Christ at Gethsemane all the way to the cross. He promised to do the will of the Father, if not for his own love for us, his own love for the Father himself, knowing what would bring trouble, ultimate trouble, knowing what would bring pain and trial, ultimate trial, knowing what would bring pain and persecution, ultimate persecution, knowing what would bring the cross all the way to his death, the ultimate oath fulfilled. Jesus said, I love you as my bride, not until death do us part, but I love you as my bride, even though death will do us apart. The ultimate covenant promise, and he fulfilled it to the end. He fulfilled it perfectly. And what he said, everything that he said, everything that he thought, everything that he felt, everything that he did. You see it all through the Gospels. Every Gospel shows the account of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and what he said, what he thought, what he felt, what he did. They were all integrated. And you know in the Bible, when they talk about all the faculties of your heart and mind and soul and strength integrated together, we call that worship. Jesus Christ was worshiping on the cross with his integrity, intact, Look at the integrity of Jesus. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Worshiping through his death on the cross for you. That's his love. That's his grace. You can trust him. When he says something, you can believe him. 
when he says he will be there for you in the darkest moments, even when it seems absent, you know he's there for you. You know he will be. When he says, hey, this is going to be a dangerous path for you, you know he means it. It's true. You can take him at his word. The cross upholds the integrity of the Father as well. The cross upholds the integrity of the Father to do away with evil. He says, I promise to be just and I will do away with evil. Otherwise, if even one sin, one lie slips through, evil wins. Death wins. Sin wins. So the cross upholds the integrity of the Father to do away with evil, but it also upholds the integrity of the Father to love his people forever. He says, I will love you with an everlasting love. If anyone says, man, if this is what Christianity is about, you know, stop lying, cut it out, I can't do it, I'm out. I could never be that honest. You're missing the point. You are totally missing the point. Because what is the point? Jesus tells a story to the Pharisees. Pharisees were a group of men uh, in society, in the ancient times, religious men. But they were professionals. They, you know, they were wealthy. They were very well respected. I mean, you would want Pharisees to be your neighbor because that meant you were in a good neighborhood and you were safe. These men, they couldn't wrap their arms around the meaning of being saved by grace. They just couldn't understand that. They couldn't wrap their arms around that. And so they made a living out of moral character, just having a good moral character. They took the Mosaic law, Moses' law, the the law of God, and they basically uh, decomposed it into 635 laws that they could follow every day, every week. A moral life. And Jesus tells this parable, very simple parable. He says this. A man talked to two young men. And he said, go in the field. I want you to work for me. I'm paraphrasing it, okay? Uh, the first man says, I will. And then he does, never goes out there and he never works. The second man says, I won't. But later on, he repented and he goes. And Jesus asks them, now, which one was truly obedient to the Father? In other words, both of them lied. Both of them told a lie, right? So Jesus is asking, which one was obedient? And the Pharisees said, well, clearly the second one was obedient. And Jesus says, you are right. That's why prostitutes and pimps will go into the kingdom of heaven before you. Yikes. Ouch. You know what that means? Part of of what Jesus means here is that it's not your moral record. Because we all have terrible moral records. It's not about your moral record. It's about your willingness to look at Jesus' moral record imputed to you, transferred to you. It's not about you paying the price and working up to earn God's, God's approval. It's looking to Jesus who earned God's approval for you and that approval has been transferred to you. That's why he died on the cross. Right? On the cross... Jesus cried out, it is finished. That means that debt that you owed because of a death lease that you signed when you chose to rebel against God, Jesus paid because you couldn't pay it. He didn't want you to pay it. You cannot pay, save by your own death. And so out of Jesus' love for the Father, for his people, he paid. He lived the life that we should live. He died the death that we should die. To the end, he fulfilled the promise. Your promise, the design, his promise. Honest. 
And so when Jesus tells this parable to the Pharisees, he's saying the emphasis here is not about your moral record, but your willingness, right? Because the word that was used there is repented. That second man repented and obeyed, right? It's your willingness to turn to Jesus to repent. Tim Keller, my favorite, my favorite preacher, you know, by far, by a million miles, by a million, like million years, okay? Tim Keller, he says something like this. He says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing what he says, but he says, the only honesty that you really need to save you is your willingness to be honest about your dishonesty. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The only honesty that you really need to save you is your willingness to be honest about your dishonesty. And the only dishonesty that will ruin you is your unwillingness to be honest that you are dishonest. College students, you're like, <laughs> right? In other words, basically what he's saying is, just admit that you are dishonest. That's the beginning of repentance. Can you confess, not just generally, specifically? Can you admit that you are dishonest? That you oftentimes run from reality? That you oftentimes have to embellish reality because people won't believe you? that you often have to lie to hide, that you often have to lie to cover over your weaknesses, yourself, that you often have to lie about circumstances. Maybe you have to lie about your status or your position. Maybe you have to lie about a lot of things, your own sinfulness. We lie in many, many ways. The easiest way to evade our own weaknesses and flaws and sinfulness is to point at other people and embellish theirs, right? That's where gossip comes from. It's a form of lying because you're lying about who you really are. And... Jesus says, it begins with admitting that you are dishonest in a very specific way and wrapping your arms around the embrace of the only one who can actually cover you. And he did it with his blood. And with his blood, he has transferred his righteousness to you. That makes you, it's possible for you to be honest again. You can come clean. There's no fear of not coming clean because the only eyes that matter is seeing you with approval. Then you can come clean. What can a mother person what can another person do at worst to you? Now, in some cases, your lies are going to have consequences. You're going to have to own those consequences. You're going to have to own it. You know, don't run from the consequences. You're going to have to face it. It's just reality because sometimes the lies are so deep and the lies are so strong, right? But you can say today, I will, from now on, going forward, there will be integrity in my life. You can come to Jesus and say, you are my savior and my king. I want to submit to you. I want to trust you because you are good at your word. I've seen what you've done for me. I've seen how you lived for the Father. Will you make me a person of integrity so that my yes will be a yes and my no will be a no? Make that your everyday prayer. Absorb yourself. Meditate on the promise of God. Absorb yourself and meditate on the commands of God. That's a promise too. Live it out. Trust his word. Look to Christ. You can't just look, right? To look is to say, is to behold, to behold the beauty of Christ is to trust him, right? You can't force yourself to trust somebody, by the way. You can't force yourself to believe. So either you believe or you don't believe, but if you believe, it doesn't take any work. You just believe. You behold. The work has been done for you, okay? Trust in the person of Christ. Trust in the work of Christ, what he has done for you and uniting himself to you and then hold yourself accountable to your words. Commit to them. And the Lord has promised then 
to be faithful, and he is faithful. The Lord has promised to be faithful in your struggle with sin, in your struggle with your lies, and he is. He has been. Don't ever doubt that. Every time you doubt, think about that cross. He has been faithful. And what he has promised then, he said he will promise to bring to completion in you tomorrow. Okay? You have that power in you now, already. You will have greater power working in you than through your life until you reach the tomorrow, the not yet. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Let's pray.